Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Jensen Williams, who is the public educator at Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis. The intent of this podcast today is to actually get some public education, but on a very sensitive and disturbing subject, human trafficking. It was just a few weeks ago that the joint Waterloo-Guelph human trafficking team, which is staffed by members of both police services, arrested a Guelph man for both trafficking the victim and assaulting them himself. It's a good reminder that human trafficking happens in our own backyard, and that's why it's the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Before going any further, it seems appropriate to say that the things being discussed on this week's podcast will be triggering for people who are the victims of trafficking and sexual assault. Of course, it's not great conversation for the rest of us either, but the problem is real, and according to Statistics Canada, there was a 44% increase in human trafficking incidents over one year from 2018 to 2019. It's why this summer the government of Ontario made $2.4 million available for necessary training and resources so that every school board in the province can create a new curriculum that will educate children about the dangers of trafficking and to create new anti-trafficking protocols. It's an especially sad fact, but the average age of recruitment into sex trafficking is 13 years old. Having said that, Some people have been critical of the provincial government's direction to educate young people about the dangers of human trafficking, this direction. They note that the focus on human trafficking covers one small aspect of gender-based violence and plays into pop culture images of white girls in cargo containers, something out of a Liam Neeson movie. There's also the elephant in the room. QAnon conspiracy theories about an international cabal of politicians and celebrities who are systematically trafficking children to abuse them and sacrifice them. These conspiracy theorists have blown it out of proportion, focusing on imagery of boogeymen instead of real victims, which not only hurts the cause of raising awareness about trafficking, but ironically hurts the people they supposedly want to help. So what does the real issues around human trafficking look like in Guelph and area? That's the reason why we're talking to Jensen Williams on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. She will tell us how human trafficking works, what kind of people are involved in these crimes, and where our region sits in the human trafficking criminal ecosystem. We will also talk about the effects of the trafficking getting sensationalized, the effects of QAnon on the real efforts to end trafficking, and whether we're too focused on one type of victim because of the media coverage. And finally, we will discuss what trafficking curriculums should look like in schools, what kind of help that victims of trafficking need, and what people should be on the lookout for if they think they know someone who might be a victim of human trafficking. So I caught up with Jensen Williams a few weeks ago via Zoom. So Jensen Williams, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. I was struggling to like think of where to begin. Um, and so I, I, I figured this was kind of like the essential question, which is when we're talking about human trafficking, I think this is one of these things where a lot of people have an idea in their head of what human trafficking is. But when you are dealing with victims of human trafficking and you're talking about like the strictly sort of legal definition and the real matter of fact issues of human trafficking. What are we talking about? What is, what does that look like? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting question. There are, you know, there are legal and more formal definitions that I think are helpful to the understanding, particularly in the legal context of what human trafficking is. But, you know, sometimes it uses quite like academic and frankly complex language. So I find when I'm speaking to the general public about it, because exactly like you said, folks can have maybe a misunderstanding or a view in their head of what they think it is. Um, but how I typically would describe it is that it's the use of uh, deception, manipulation, and different control tactics used to control and exploit another person for gain. And typically that gain is financial or material items or drugs. Um, so the really key points of human trafficking is that it involves exploitation from another person. Um, and sometimes we'll talk about it in that there's four kind of points that are related to human trafficking or four key elements that essentially need to be present in order for something to be defined as human trafficking. And that's force, fraud, coercion, and control by a third party. So the force and coercion piece, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. That could be that physical abuse or emotional manipulation, things like, you know, if you loved me, you'd do this. You know, I do a lot for you. I need you to do this for me. If you don't do this, then there's consequences. So kind of, you know, using those manipulation de deception tactics so folks feel as if there's, you know, real or perceived consequences if they're not to go along with what's happening. Um, that fraudulent element kind of goes hand in hand with that exploitation piece of, um, you know, it could involve lying about the personal gain that individuals could receive from engaging in trafficking related work, um, but also involves uh, withholding money, basic needs, um, and essentially associating those engaging in work related trafficking with rewards. Um, so lying about what the benefits really of the job are and withholding that money. So that exploitation piece and then the control by a third party. So you have one person who's making the decisions, controlling someone's movements, the money they make, who, the, who they talk to um, and so forth. And, you know, oftentimes in the work that we do at Gulf Wellington Women in Crisis, just from the nature of um, that we work with those who identify as women, the majority of individuals that we see and serve are those who have been impacted by sex trafficking. Um, but there's also other types of trafficking like forced labor, um, child marriage, child soldiers, debt bondage, uh, and so forth. But really key to understanding uh, what human trafficking is, is that it's exploitation, it's happening, uh, another person is involved in that exploitation. Um, and there's oftentimes those, those, those coercive and abusive tactics, and that not just looks like physical abuse, but also looks like sexual, emotional, and so forth. And who kind of, like, when we're talking about who is responsible, I think the, the predominant image is that it's, it's always like a worldwide criminal cabal. And I mean, that is, that is certainly a part of it. There are worldwide criminal networks that are partially responsible for this, but I mean, when you go into when perpetrators are caught and they go into courts, I mean, like what kind of person is it? Because some of the things you were getting at kind of is like coercion. Well, coercion can happen between partners. It could happen between mm -hmm. people who live in the same community. It's not necessarily this, this sort of popular image of the global network of, of mm -hmm. bad guys who are just collecting people one place and exploiting them in another place. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, there's no real typical profile for who a trafficker is. Um, you know, they can be men, they can be women, um, they can be trans and non-binary folks. Um, 
the majority of those who are traffickers um, that we're seeing, at least in the Ontario region, uh, are younger men. So usually between the ages of 18 and 34. Um, but in terms of, you know, who they are or what their background is, they, you know, can any different backgrounds. I think it really comes from those underlying behaviors of, you know, a lack of idea about consent, healthy relationships, you know, a desire to, um, to succeed financially. Um, so typically those are maybe coming from more, you know, marginalized backgrounds um, or those who are seeking out to, to exploit others essentially for personal or financial or material gain. So in terms of that, that typical picture, you know, um, sometimes I talk about like what it's not and kind of you touched on this as well is that a lot of times folks have the reference of like the movie Taken with Liam Neeson <laughs> where women are, you know, stolen and brought away to foreign and faraway places, which kind of feeds into almost like racist and colonial fueled ideas that it's like happening by you know immigrants or non-english speaking people in faraway places but um you know it is happening here and one thing that we are seeing you know more and more of is women recruiting other women um mm -hmm. kind of through through friendship and so actually i think the majority i think it's 60 percent of young people who are charged with human trafficking related offenses are, are women and girls so um we are seeing, you know, more women uh, become involved as, as traffickers, uh, typically who are initially trafficked and recruited by men, uh, but then, you know, start to kind of recruit other women as a way to, you know, kind of move themselves up the hierarchy, essentially. And I, I imagine that that kind of makes it more difficult um, when you have victims becoming perpetrators, or I guess they're also, there's an element of manipulation there too, right? It's like, mm -hmm. if you're, if, if you have been used and now you're given like a different role where you're able to, I guess, not suffer as much abuse by, I guess, mm -hmm. essentially recruiting other people to take that abuse instead. It's, yeah. it's, it's not as, as cut and dry as I, I like taken makes it look like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And it is like, it's a survival tactic really to essentially become a way to potentially avoid abuses um, by, you know, recruiting and bringing in other people 100%. So when we're talking about the victims of human trafficking in our area and like the greater Guelph and Waterloo uh, area, uh, southwestern Ontario, if we're going to be terribly macro about it, what do we see? I mean, who's kind of, who are kind of the victims that are being trafficked in our area? Like what, what kind of you, you mentioned a whole ton of different areas like forced labor and sex work and all that. But, you know, who, what, who are the victims of human trafficking in our region? And, and um, are they people from our region? Or are they people come, who are brought into the region? Mm -hmm. Just with the scope and nature of the work that I do, I can only really speak to trends and demographics that we're seeing for sex trafficking. Sure. Um, but for those, it's kind of mimicking, you know, larger Ontario statistics trends as well. So we're seeing the majority of individuals. And again, this could be from the mandate of what we do and who we work with. But uh, we're seeing, you know, the majority of individuals identifying as, as women. And that can be, you know, cis women, trans women, uh, and also non-binary folks. Um, we're seeing, you know, fairly young individuals um, being brought in and recruited. Um you know, individuals between like 13 and 16, uh, but also older. So there's there's a wide range of ages, but I would say the majority is our younger um, women identified folks. Um, you know, many are um, identified as Indigenous. Uh, many have been involved in the child welfare system. Uh, many might have previously been involved in sex work. Um, 
But it's really, you know, oftentimes we're seeing that individuals who are trafficked, and this much kind of correlates to with with gender-based violence statistics as a whole, is that it's individuals who are experiencing some level of marginalization and oppression in society. So, you know, not only do we have sexism and patriarchy from, you know, being identified as a woman, but there's fewer economic opportunities for women as a the whole. Uh, and then when you factor in things like poverty, mental health and addictions, when you have those layers of marginalization that renders people vulnerable to exploitation on a whole, um, particularly for women, um, you know, particularly for women who, um, you know, use drugs or experience poverty, um, that they're particularly vulnerable to experiencing exploitation. So I would say overall, those are those are some trends, but also the difficult thing about human trafficking and other types of crimes and even gender based violence as a whole is that what we know for the most part is reliant on you know police reporting uh, and we know that the majority of individuals likely don't report for a variety of reasons um, you know whether it's stigma fear even a lack of awareness that the situation could qualify as, as human trafficking as sex trafficking um, so keeping that in mind with you know um what we're seeing um, but within our agency so our anti-human trafficking program became permanent in 2018 and since then, uh, we've served over uh, 70 clients in the Guelph Wellington region. So, um, you know, sometimes maybe more than than folks would think, but looking mm. at, you know, where are people potentially reporting and disclosing these experiences to? Uh, and I think that that's something that needs to improve overall so we can really get a sense um, as well as what's happening, but also working towards reducing those barriers for people to be able to come forward. Right. 70 people, I mean, over a three-year period does sound like a lot. I'm curious about what the effects on them are. Like, you know, when, when they come to you and, and they take part in the program, what, what, I don't want to say like what was done to them and make it sound exploitative, but I mean, just like, what are the issues they're facing? Like what, how, how, what kind of help do they need uh, from you and, and women in crisis and other groups when they're, I guess, rescued for lack of a better term. Well, you know, everyone's experience with trauma of any kind is different. So kind of how we work is anytime that someone comes to us, just figuring out why they've come and what they need and really focusing their journey around them. Um, so using a very, you know, feminist and like client centered approach to kind of how can we walk alongside you and support you and empower you to achieve and get what, what with what you're going. And you know, we kind of look to with uh, even like Maslow's hierarchy of needs of, you know, when someone, how can you start kind of that healing and that trauma processing uh, and getting towards, you know, more of that healing approach when you are lacking things like shelter and food and so on and so forth. So we really use kind of a well-rounded approach to try to get folks connected to things that can help them live, you know, independently. So whether that's uh, shelter, that's food and security related programs, that's mental health and addictions programs, um, through a harm reduction lens as well of, you know, how can we potentially support someone? Um, and, you know, a lot of it uh, with, with human trafficking and, and other and sexual violence as well is, is that trauma-based counseling. So giving individuals the tools and the skills um, to be able to, you know, cope with the trauma that they, they have experienced. And um, a lot of it is around, you know, safety planning as well. So if individuals are potentially still involved in trafficking or 
are like wanting to exit, you know, exiting even an abusive relationship or human trafficking. I think it takes women on average like eight or nine times to leave that situation just because it's so vulnerable and so dangerous. Um, and so it's a lot of safety planning around, you know, how can we ensure that individuals are, um, you know, living their, their lives in the safest way as possible and protecting um, them from further exploitation and harm. But really, you know, kind of on that first initial meeting and forward, it's what are you hoping to get from coming here and how can we help support you in that? So it's really, you know, it is really individual, but um, some of those practical assistance pieces like connecting folks to um, supports that help them live, you know, confident, independent lives, as well as those like emotional um trauma coping tools. Um, yeah, that's the, those are some things that, that, that folks come here for and get out of it. It sounds like, and you know, you're of the two of us, you're an expert more than I am, but it, it just sounds that a lot of the barriers and a lot of the issues that people who are trafficked must overcome are not too terribly dissimilar from issues that other people who have been abused, like not necessarily traffic, but like abused in like a domestic sense. There's a lot of overlap there in terms of some of the work that Women Mm -hmm. in Crisis does. Yeah, in terms of the services that we provide, you know, absolutely. But I think it's also recognized that we have like, um, so for like sexual violence, like our sexual assault center, uh, we have that as a specific program. We have anti-human trafficking as a specific program. So it's about kind of offering that that individualized approach that recognizes um, the unique and different experiences that that folks may have with that and that that exploitation piece that's that's there within that trafficking and and addressing that and also you know with 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 sexual violence with domestic violence with human trafficking a lot of it is really deeply rooted in in relationships so other that's people who are being recruited through friendships through um you know those who are saying that it's a romantic relationship um you know that that attachment piece is is very strong within human trafficking and so um how can you you know connect individuals and to attachments outside of that relationship. So really focusing on building those community connections, I would say is something that's a bit more unique with human trafficking, Um, but absolutely in terms of that. And even in terms of, you know, the intersections of, of why people come to us, um, you know, a lot dealing with just things that are exist on a societal level, right? Like those different systems of oppression that are that are intersecting and just recognizing, you know, they do impact women and trans and non-binary folks differently just with that gender oppression piece in there as well. But um, yeah, so there is, you know, one of the many of the barriers and things that produce the situations where human trafficking happens, um, you know, they exist on that broader societal level. Uh, And so that's why I think within the work that we do, it's important to not only work as an agency, but work with other agencies and organizations, work very collaboratively as a community, because we don't not we don't just want to deal with this as an issue. We need to also deal with the root causes. Um, So I think that that work is, is really essential as well. And you mentioned this term Maslow's hierarchy of need. Um, mm-hmm. I've, I don't think I've ever heard that before. What is that? Yeah, so uh, I forget their first name. I think Maslow's the last name, uh, but it was a psychologist. And it's a theory that kind of looks at, um, it's a, a pyramid and looks at, you know, what are our basic needs? And it kind of shows that we need to have certain needs fulfilled before others. So um, kind of at the base of that pyramid is those um basic needs like food and shelter uh, and so forth and as it go up it goes up you know you become more around like your emotional fulfillment and 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 so forth so um looking at that of 
kind of what are some of the basic survival needs uh, because it's difficult to even deal with things like mental health issues when you're not in a, in a stable place to, you know, you're worried about shelter, you're worried about food, you're worried about childcare. Um, so how can you kind of weave in to stabilize those basic needs while also working towards kind of those more uh, emotional fulfillment? Mm-hmm. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was there's lately there's been this sort of drive from the provincial government about raising awareness about trafficking, including a, a, I'll call it a mandate for schools to institute anti-trafficking sort of awareness programs. I have heard the criticism that the programs or, or the intent of the government is kind of predominantly focused on let's call it the taken school of what trafficking looks like. You know, it's, it's all sex exploitation of, of, of young women. Um, I guess, first of all, is it helpful to sort of put the, the, the onus on schools to sort of start a conversation about trafficking? I mean, any, you know, what are the odds? I don't actually, I don't want to phrase it that way, but you know, is, is I, let's start with this is school a good place to sort of start this conversation with like by making it part of the curriculum essentially mm-hmm. yeah the announcement that i believe you're referring to is in uh earlier in july uh the provincial government of ontario announced i believe it was a 2.4 million dollar investment to mandate school boards to add uh, human trafficking related elements to the curriculum. Uh, and I do think that that is, um, it's a good start. It's absolutely a good start in recognizing too that like community organizations have been doing this work for a while. And so one of the things that I am hopeful for and would like to see is in coming up with that curriculum, working with school boards individually and even provincially having the desire to work with organizations that are supporting survivors in the community already. Uh, Because I think that, you know, that education piece of doing that work of, you know, what's the right language to talk about this in, what's helpful. um, Because I think, to your point, you know, we make it seem scary and also not that feasible like not that likely that it would happen when we kind of frame it in that way and so I think one thing that's going to be really important and the Ontario government has actually done an an okay job at this already particularly with um nor like talking about the ways in which individuals are recruited and how quote-unquote normal that that process is because it oftentimes will look like like I've mentioned you know it's occurring through friendships it's occurring through relationships and you know it's not individuals asking like hey will you have sex with this person for money that's not where it starts it starts with you know that deep level of grooming of getting to know individuals and making them feel special and knowing what their vulnerabilities and weaknesses are and really you know taking advantage of those and it happens oftentimes with people in your lives who um, you have that caring relationship with and so I think that the education really should be focused not only on the like the poignant what is human trafficking but also on those elements of consent and healthy relationships and communication and boundaries and addictions and I think that it needs to be you know very fulsome and to a degree you know the curriculum does reflect a lot of those those points already and so I think it's making those connections between those topics uh, to to exploitation and you know the, the warnings of exploitation and I think that starting at within the school level is is a great start because I think in some way it legitimizes how important this is um, 
And I think that that's something that the school board, it, it's exciting to see the school boards take that on. And I'm hopeful that it will happen, you know, in collaboration with community organizations who are who are doing that work. But it sounds like it's kind of a fine line, right? It, it sounds like it, in, as, as you were talking, I'm, I was thinking about like anti-drug programs when I was a kid in school, like just say no. And, Dare you know, and yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like if you like smoke one joint it's the first step to like ending up as a junkie. That was always kind of, it always kind of worked backwards. It's like, mm-hmm. we don't want you to be some drug addicted person living on the street and injecting heavens knows what into your arm. Mm-hmm. Instead of coming at, from a, at it from a place of, you know, just be, giving you the straight information and being cautious. And I'm wondering if that's kind of where you're coming from on, uh, as, as on, on the matter of trafficking, where it's like, giving kids the building blocks so that they're able to recognize when they're being exploited, when they can draw that line for themselves on, on matters of consent, knowing how to build healthy relationships, as -hmm. opposed to just going to the end game of some skeezy guy from Eastern Europe is going to lure you into a crate, not to keep coming back to the taken analogies, but I mean, that's, it feels like one way gives kids a broader set of tools as opposed to just focusing on the worst possible scenario. No, 100%, 100%. And I think that that is right, you know, and that when we talk about uh, even things like, you know, learning back even to my own school experience, like you're saying, you know, like you're learning about sexually transmitted infections and drugs. And it's from that nature of like fear. Fear Mm. is the model that you're learning from it from, not from the sense of kind of, you know, talking about like bodily autonomy and what your rights are. Um, And I think, you know, talking about the recruitment models of how similar it looks like, you know, relationships that we're having. Um, So I think that those, that, that piece that it needs to be continual and those building blocks, exactly like you said, um, working towards it. So it's not just on the nose, we're talking about this, and this is the only way we're talking about it, uh, is to name it, but it's also about kind of making those connections to those those other broader skills and talking about it in a sense that, um, you know, really speaks to how, how common um, this is happening and that, that it can and does happen to anyone. Because I think, you know, folks can feel like, oh, that would never happen to me. You know, I'm right. smarter than that. I would never do that. These And I think just recognizing and really pushing home that like this can and it does happen to folks, um, even, you know, wealthier folks in the community, like no one is really immune from experiencing that. Uh, and I think, you know, also that in that education, the awareness of what organizations in the community can provide different types of support and, you know, one of the things that, that we do, we do education within the school boards, but we also do like youth-based programming. So with organizations in the community that have uh, youth groups or drop-in groups or anything like that, working it into that type of education as well. So it's like no matter where youth are, they have an outlet to learn about this and, and feel supported in it. Because, you know, there are folks who might be going to alternative schools or, you know, might not be going to school. And how can you reach those youth, I think, is another piece that's that's really important. It also gives young people um an opportunity to sort of like I, I guess also the comfort to kind of talk about it as well instead of just this this scary thing it's and, and I think that's maybe perhaps what the hope is by introducing this as a pillar of the curriculum it, it gives a like a sort of central place so that it's not another one of those things that kids are learning bits and pieces from like watching tv or 
um, going online or, or ho- mm-hmm. <laughs> schoolyard games of telephone and how kids learn <laughs> sort, yeah. of, sort of about complicated things. And I also think it's a really great jumping off point for like educators and parents and adults in the community to learn about this because, you know, they're going to be having conversations internally of like, oh, how do we talk about this? Or maybe we don't know enough about this to talk about it. And I think that will hopefully facilitate those relationships with organizations like us and local local gender-based violence and provincial gender-based violence organizations who can, you know, say like, hey, let's work together. Um, Let's let's work together on this. Yeah. And I, I, I gather, and you can correct me if I'm wrong again, but the centralization of kind of all this discussion is, is kind of a piece that's been missing because women in crisis do a certain work. Um, victim services does a, a, like a certain work on this. It, the, the work is kind of spread out all over this place. And there's kind of like kind of no central clearinghouse in terms of like developing education programs and outreach and, and things like that. And school seems like a natural place to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it even like even for the when I'm kind of tailoring when I'm working with certain youth in the community who are outside of the school board. So another like youth programming organization, I will tend to look at school board curriculum to say, oh, what age group is this appropriate for? Or like what kind of, you know, what context is this already being talked about? So I think it does, you know, lay a strong groundwork, kind of like I said earlier, to legitimize that this education is important. And I believe that they've said uh, in the announcements that it would be for grades one to eight, which I think is, is positive. That was one of the things that I was thinking of when I heard the announcement of, oh, well, what age would they ta- tailor this for? Because, you know, sometimes and folks will ask me this all the time of like, what how young is too young to start talking about it? And I think that also gets into why it's important to talk about it in, in ways that might not be on the nose. You're building skills to prevent human trafficking, uh, those consent, healthy relationships and, and those other pieces. So, um, yeah, I think this is a really strong complement to work that's been started and, and been done. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm positive to see kind of where where it goes. I think it's it can be a really good start. It's come up several times already, but I'll ask the question outright. How how much has like the sensationalization of trafficking like hurt your efforts to sort of deal with it as like a as a nine to five job? Um, not that you, it's a nine to five job, but I mean, you know, it's it's in movies, it's on TV shows. Um, it, it's kind of this easy thing if you want to have a bad guy make him a human trafficker because everyone can agree trafficking is bad and and it creates this visage that traffickers are around every corner and a certain type of trafficker at that so how how has the sens- sensationalization of this sort of hurt your efforts or mm-hmm. you know well i think it's it's you know as as negative as some depictions are that kind of lead to, you know, myths and misinformations, it also gives really helpful examples that people are familiar of to help say like, oh, this is a myth about human trafficking and let's break that down. Um, So I think in some way where people are familiar with those types of human trafficking that might be presented through uh, things like entertainment media, those are helpful reference points to actually say like, this isn't what human trafficking is like in the day to day. So I think in some way, you know, it being a prominent storyline and even um, 
kind of led to that that entertainment value of, of people maybe talking about it more. Uh, you know, we have found even with the amount of, of funding over the last few years has led to, you know, an increase of funding, you know, in school boards for organizations like ours to essentially do this work. So I'm not sure if it's like entertainment media or just a growing awareness of, of what this is that's kind of led to that uh, wanting to take initiative to do more about it on a community and on a provincial level. Um, but I think that, you know, it, those those sensationalized efforts do kind of give us as, as harmful as they could they can be and, and for that if that's the only point of human trafficking education that folks have mm. uh, but at the same time I think it for for my job in particular has kind of given me some material to say like oh this is actually a myth and let's 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 talk about why um, so I think in some way it's when you have the opportunity to, to, to attend an event or listen to a podcast like this or, or hear more about it, you can kind of say like, oh yeah, that, that is what I thought it was. And it came from me watching this or hearing this. Um, but I do think, you know, in the language and, and stuff that we use, it's important to, um, you know, be mindful of, of, of how we're describing people um, and stuff like that. I think that it's, it's helpful to, you know, really look and seek out the information that, that is truthful, uh, but even in terms of, you know, um, like advertisements related to human trafficking, you often see like people with chains or like tape right. on their mouth, which also leads into kind of views that, you know, people are, are stolen and held against their will. Um, and so I think that the education, even around, uh, I find the education that piece that goes really hand in hand with this with me is that we need to talk more about emotional abuse um, because I think that we often talk about abuse sometimes in the sense that the first thing that people come to mind is it's physical um, right. or you know sexual violence but I think that that emotional abuse that coercion that like that deep psychological abuse is something that needs to be talked about and recognized more um, and I think that that's a really important education piece that has been missing um, from even, you know, the media aspect and, and, and broader overall. So really, really focusing on that, I think, is is something that, you know, these sensationalized examples has have sort of lended itself to of like, this isn't the real picture and, and providing even avenues to, you know, provide that education of, of this is what it's actually like. Because I think the concern is, and this is kind of getting at what some, some of the people who are critical of the government's mandate is that it the concern is projecting only one picture of what trafficking looks like and that is typically of pretty young white girls being trafficked for sex which is not the whole picture but it is mm -hmm. it is kind of the predominant picture that people think of yeah absolutely and i think that that's that's the angle that gets the most public outcry and attention right like you mm -hmm. know because the 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 fragility of of white women and, and all that stuff you know feeding into that and then you know people will people will give a shit right if it's right. that but i think what you know really you know needs to be talked about and this was in the announcement so i'm hopeful that it will become you know looking at that anti-oppressive analysis is that like i said you know the um Indigenous women and girls are overrepresented. Those in the child welfare system are overrepresented. You know, um, new Canadians, immigrant women, folks with mental health and addictions issues. So I think that that really needs to be included in that education to kind of see the the, the multiple layers of of marginalization that lend people more vulnerable to exploitation. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful that it will be you know more of a diversified 
picture of, of what that actually is and what that looks like because then kind of back to that piece of you know it can and does happen to anyone mm-hmm. and I think just really you know building that home that people aren't uh, necessarily immune to to experiencing that in their communities um, yeah this is the big one I wanted to get your comment on but I'm not going to say its name but certain conspiracy theories about child <laughs> trafficking does that have a, a, a damaging effect on the work you do in terms of, you know, trying to get attention because mm. p- people hear about child sex trafficking and it, they're kind of thinking about this one thing, this one area that has gotten so many people worked up that is a, a complete fabrication. Does, mm. does, does do conspiracy theories like that uh, have an effect on your work? I mean, I haven't necessarily seen it directly impact my work or people, you know, attending my workshops and stuff who are kind of putting that narrative forward. Uh, But I think, you know, overall, back to the point about like ideal victims or people Mm. that society wants to protect when individuals in society feels as if those people, those individuals are at risk, they will give they will give a shit. And, you know, women, children, like, um, you know, when, when groups of people, but then also looking at like which children is it? Which women is it? Um, you know, is it white privileged individuals that when society will then care and kind of invest in that? So um, I think it's really about not pushing that narrative that we really need to, you know, stay away from. And um, yeah, we don't really come in, in contact, or at least in my experience, with folks who are, you know, talking to us a lot about uh, child sex trafficking. And it's not to say that it doesn't happen, but kind of like you were mentioning, the way that it's talked about is, you know, politicized and comes from um, those of certain political leanings and interests. Um, So I think that, you know, recognizing that it's an issue, that it it can happen anywhere, it does happen to everyone. Um, But, you know, recognizing of, you know, how are we talking about it? And is it in a way that we just want people to kind of have that sympathy card and, and feel poorly for these other other folks. So I think it's about, you know, talking honestly and openly about who it does and can happen to. And that that's not just women, it's not just children, uh, and really shining the light on the, um, the intersectionality between, you know, identities and experiences. I think that's valuable to know that it, uh, it, it's, from the from the perspective of people who are actually fighting the problem, you're not having people screaming at you about adrenochrome and other things. That that it's um, the people who are involved in this work are taking it seriously and are people who are seriously invested in it. So, from that point of view, um, what are some of the things that you would like to see? Like whether that's you know, more education, whether that's new programs, I mean, what would help you in your job, like in terms of government assistance, assistance from the community, you know, what would make Jensen Williams job a bit easier? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, you know, well, in my role as as in the public education program, like I, I, firmly, you know, personally and deeply really think that education is such a powerful tool in violence prevention. Um, And I think that that education has to happen at all levels. So, you know, we've talked about the schools. I think it also needs to happen with, you know, law enforcement, officers of the court, um, workers in any industry, uh, particularly for hospitality and tourism. I think the more people who have access to education and information, not only of what it is, what to look out for, but also how to potentially support someone who might be 
experiencing that, even if that's just, you know, knowing what resources are in your community and how to connect folks to that. So I do think that that is a tool that's always going to be valuable and, and needs to be consistent and um, consistently trying to, you know, find ways to not preach to the choir and actually educate the folks who who are looking for more information and, and want to know more about this. Um, and that that education be uh, not just related to human trafficking, but related to consent and healthy relationships and harm reduction. Um, I think having more, you know, we're seeing this a lot in the Guelph Wellington region. It's great, the creation of, of the different youth hubs that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm finding, you know, that, that community-based programming, that education for youth, even just drop in like places for youth to go, um, social and employment programs. Um, you know, when youth feel connected to something, they're less likely to seek it out from other sources. So uh, potentially from traffickers. So having, you know, more, um, interconnected youth programming and opportunities for youth, having that education piece, um, but also, you know, having the community, you know, not just speak about this or talk about this when it's in the news or um, when there's an education or awareness day, but having, you know, folks who have done that education, have done that work to talk to other people about it in their lives. And, you know, if they're hearing myths about it from from their friends or other people, having the language and the tools to kind of educate one another about it, I think is that, is that, but I think overall, you know, we know the underlying root causes of, of trafficking are related to, um, there are many, but one that I, I see a lot and I'm really passionate about is, is doing more anti-poverty and, and harm reduction work um, and having those, you know, local organizations and community, you know, all be part of all of that strategy to, to prevent and end human trafficking and really coming from a place that, you know, individuals don't feel judged because I think that that's something that you know we really need to educate folks about what human trafficking is uh, but we also need to do that in order to break down a lot of the stigma Um, and another thing I think aspect of that works too is is educating specifically between the difference of sex trafficking and sex work Um, because a lot of folks will feel that um, you know sex work all sex, uh, all those who are trafficked or all those who experience sex work are trafficked, sorry. Um, and so kind of seeing those as, as two in the same. And, you know, there are already a lot of, of, of stigma around sex work in society. Uh, and so I think those those honest and open conversations about sex work, about sex trafficking, about exploitation um, really need to happen. And I think that uh, in terms of a government, I think like really strong connections and working with frontline community organizations, uh, provincial organizations and advocacy groups. Um, Cause I think, you know, the initiative is, is absolutely great but it needs to be done with survivors in mind. Um, and I think working with organizations and survivors directly is a really, really key part of that work. You did hit on something that I, I wanted to ask you about too which is I, I worked in a hotel for several years mm-hmm. here in Guelph and would routinely interact with sex workers. Mm-hmm. And I confess, I would have a hard time knowing when someone would be trafficked and when someone would just be a sex worker, you know, self-employed, I guess you could say. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess, so what should people be on the lookout for when we're trying to make those distinctions so that we're not, uh, you know, engaging in those stigmas that you're talking about? You know, what what are kind of Mm -hmm. the warning signs that someone's being trafficked? Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the warning signs for trafficking, um, 
you know, some of the warning signs for, for grooming might look a little differently. So maybe if someone has, um, you know, kind of in the grooming luring stage, uh, they're changing their behaviors a little bit. Um, that could look like, you know, maybe they have a new friend or a partner, uh, oftentimes is older than them, uh, maybe new access to items that they weren't previously able to afford, uh, withdrawing from those around them, maybe starting substance use, um, maybe having an increased interest in appearance. We also see a relationship between disordered eating uh, and trafficking. Mm. Those would be like wanting to kind of fit up to the, the ideal, you know, beauty standards is something that's, that's valued particularly within that industry. Um, as kind of you move more into those who are uh, maybe a bit more entrenched in trafficking, um, I think the inability to communicate freely. So this could be maybe someone is always around them or watching their phone or kind of you know, speaking for them, um, really looking for, you know, back to that piece of what I talked about at the beginning is part of that definition is that control by a third party. So looking to see, you know, is there another person around that seems to have a really strong influence over who they speak to, their movements, et cetera. Um, potentially, you know, a lack of money, uh, a lack of ID or personal possessions. Uh, you know, folks are moving around a lot. Uh, a lot of times folks aren't allowed to maybe have essentially their, their own stuff. Um, potentially, um, you know, being secretive about their activities, um, maybe signs of, you know, escalating addiction or abuse. So there's lots of different, you know, signs that could happen. And, um, you know, the big thing to differentiate, and this is something that's hard to visually see a lot of the times of uh, the difference between sex work and, and sex trafficking is consent. Mm. Um, and so with, you know, individuals who are consensual, you know, involuntary sex workers, you know, choosing, they get to choose who they go on dates with, where, you know, the, the money that they make, what safety precautions are in place for them. So kind of having that consent and relative control over the situation. Um, whereas with, with human trafficking and sex trafficking, you know, that, that consent is not there. So you're seeing that exploitation, that someone else is making decisions about where they are, who they're with, um, what kind of activities that they're doing. Uh, and oftentimes individuals, you know, will have really nothing they don't they don't have any expectations of, of what's going to happen when someone walks in a room or what's been agreed upon you know in closed doors with another person so I would say you know for those working in the hospitality inter, uh, industry in particular because we you know motels and hotels and airbnbs um, that's where we see potentially a, a lot of this taking place is in those like temporary uh, residences um, I would say to look out for you know that individual that seems to be around, you know, maybe making decisions, uh, seems to have control or influence over others, um, or even, you know, having resources available um, in, in the workplace. So, you know, having a discrete resource that might have a crisis line number that you could maybe slip in with the room key, like something like that, that it's not really obvious, you know, not talking to that person directly, uh, and rather maybe, you know, saying, hey, if you need anything, like, uh, I'm a safe person to talk to, like just kind of being, you know, subtle in, in whatever ways you can and, and finding ways to, to get information, even if it's, you know, if there's uh, a vending machine or like a public bathroom where you could put a sign up or, or something like, you know, looking for help, like here's a crisis line number. Um, so finding ways to just either like know more about it and those warning signs. So if you could seek out a training uh, to potentially learn more about that for those in the Gulf Wellington region, that's something that we offer. Um, there's lots of great information as well, you know, online. 
But I find, yeah, seeking out that information to learn more about it and then, you know, seeking out what resources you can maybe have in that workplace, what are maybe some supportive phrases to say to someone, um, you know, just not placing that blame, letting someone know that you're a, you're a safe person to talk to. So that was a lot for one answer, but I hope that answered your question. No, no, no it's, I, I think what it comes down to is, as you were talking about, is, is stigma and, you know, just from my couple of years working in the hotel business. I mean, people understood that sex work was happening, but not always willing to, I guess, acknowledging, acknowledge it or ignore it. But, you know, it, it just, you know, take the stigma off, talk to mm-hmm. sex workers like they're people because they are people. And that makes it easier to find the ones who are really in trouble and, um, gives them a sense of comfort that they can reach out that there is someone who will listen a hundred percent yeah talking to sex workers people's get that on a shirt everybody wear it (laughs) (laughs) yeah that and I think to the you know the a lot of times folks are too scared or don't know how to ask for help you know a lot of times they're being monitored or or watched or surveyed and so really don't feel safe or comfortable to seek that information out on their own so if you can some way find ways to have that information available um you know it might not be you know having a pamphlet then someone has to walk up and seek that out so i think those those discreet ways of slipping in those resources um you know absolutely essential maybe to wrap up is the problem are are we kind of more aware of trafficking and issues around trafficking now so it makes it seem like it's worse or is the problem getting worse and how much of this is kind of exacerbated by the pandemic because it's hard to like out it's hard to reach out to people in the community when everyone's on lockdown it Mm -hmm. so you know I, i guess from your perspective um are we doing better on trafficking or are are we still struggling to catch up that's a really good question i would say that Overall, folks are becoming more aware than they have been in the past. And you know, because of that awareness, uh, potentially individuals might realize, oh, I was in a situation or I'm in a situation that would qualify as human trafficking. Mm. Uh, and so seeing even organizations like ours and, and other sexual assault centers who are having you know now anti-human trafficking programs and doing that public education work uh, and that has come from you know not only increased awareness but increased funding um, increasing you know seeing human trafficking prevention work as a priority um, so I would say that overall you know our awareness has increased which likely will and has led to an increase of reporting and an increase in talking about it um, because just generally, greater awareness of a that there's potentially more supports available that are specifically for trafficking survivors than there has been before. Um, So I think that that awareness piece uh, has potentially made it more comfortable for some folks to disclose uh, and having at least outlets to seek support and have that disclosure. And I think generally the public as a whole potentially is starting to learn more about it primarily from, you know, organizations that are supporting survivors who are doing that advocacy work and it's then 
being picked up, you know, by uh, by the provincial government, by other organizations who are seeing the value in the work that's being done. Um, so I would say, is it getting worse? It's hard to say, or do we just know more about it now than we did? Uh, and I would say that having more conversations, more resources, more information has likely and will likely continue to lead to us seeing and more experiences because we're all working towards, uh, you know, reducing the barriers and the stigma towards coming forward and in an effort, you know, to see that work be successful, um, we will likely see that there's there's more happening than we likely know of. Um, and on the pandemic piece, um, yeah, it's been it's been really difficult to you know even get a sense of 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 the issue because we know that even the barriers for folks to reach out to us are higher than ever before. Uh, in terms of you know, is there a safe time to make a crisis call or uh, you know attend an online appointment? Uh, those barriers are are really high. Whereas we could have kind of a, a relative more amount um, of you know privacy and anonymity and confidentiality where folks might have more opportunities to, you know, um, have alone time or go outside of, of the situation to maybe connect with us. So we know that the barriers have been higher than ever. And, you know, when um, hotels and places like that were closing, it was kind of like, whoa, where are folks going? Like it was a really big concern of, you know, well, where is this happening now? Because it already is something that, you know, um, trafficking and, and individuals move a lot all over you know there is a lot of movement that's going on so um, for a while it was kind of of that silence of okay what's going on like we need to kind of get a handle of what's happening um, but I would say you know as things are, are starting to open up like we had had to adapt really quickly as being an essential service of like things we've never done online before how can we now do that and uh, being kind of a, a year and a half two years, however long it's been now. Um, yeah, it, it has been challenging, but, uh, you know, recognizing and figuring out different ways to, to support and, and reach folks and also to continue that, that education work that we're doing online. And in some ways for me in public education, um, I'm finding that doing, you know, online workshops uh, and trainings and, and so forth are for some more accessible because uh, I can have more people. You don't necessarily have to travel. Uh, you don't, uh, you know, you can do it on your own time. A lot of them are recorded. Folks can watch. So in some ways I find it's opened up kind of a whole new world of accessibility for, for education. Um, yeah. And, and conversation too, I think overall about gender-based violence, you know, lots of public conversations happening because, you know, statistics are coming out that are showing in times of pandemics and times of crisis, this is when we see a spike. And so that in some degree has brought the conversation to the public eye in a really prominent way that I, I'd say it hasn't been in for a few years. So um, as negative as a lot of the impacts of the pandemic have been, there has been, there has been some positives and some silver, silver linings for sure. Well, I didn't expect there to be any definitive conclusions from this conversation. So we, <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> we delivered on my expectations. But um, Jensen Williams, just, uh, thank you so much for all your time and uh, all your hard work and your, for uh, giving us so much of your time to this conversation today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And for anyone who is interested in learning more about us, uh, you can check out our website, gwwomeninincrisis.org. We also have information there about our anti-human trafficking public education program. For anyone who's listening and is seeking support, our 24-hour crisis line is available, and that number is 519-836-5710. Thanks so much. 
And once again, that was Jensen Williams. You can get in touch with the Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis in their anti-human trafficking program at GW Women in Crisis, all one word, GWWomenInCrisis.org, or by calling the 24-hour crisis line at 519-836-5710 or 1-800-265-7233. That's 1-800-265-SAFE. Also, this year's virtual Take Back the Night event, which is hosted by Women in Crisis, will be held on Facebook Live Thursday, September the 16th at 6.30 p.m. And just a reminder, too, that there's currently an election on. To listen to interviews with the candidates running in Guelph, tune into Open Sources Guelph, which you can find on the Guelph Politicast channel every Monday. And for interviews with candidates from Wellington Halton Hills, Stay tuned for special editions of the Wellington Halton Hills Politicast on Saturdays. And that's it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.